Heavenly Father, that last song is the cry of our hearts. You are the one thing that we need, the one thing that we seek, the one thing that we desire. And so my prayer, my only prayer this morning is that you would come into this room, that your spirit would be with us, Father, that you would glorify and magnify your name through the the clear communication of the gospel, Father, that you would remove any error from my mouth and that you'd help us all, myself included, receive the great realities that we're going to be experiencing and seeing and knowing from just looking at your story in Scripture. We ask this trusting in you in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. And Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and and begged him, saying, Send her away, she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And it says her daughter was healed instantly. Last week, we were continuing our journey through the book of Ruth, and we saw the sacrificial love of a young Moabite woman named Ruth. She is, like this woman in Matthew 15, also a Gentile, also a Canaanite. And both Ruth and this woman have several things in common. The first thing they have in common is that they are suffering. Ruth has lost her husband. And she has chosen to stay with Naomi, who has also lost her husband and her son, and now her second daughter-in-law, Orpah. They've lost a lot. They are alone going back to to Bethlehem. And this Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, who is seeking Jesus out, has a little girl. That's what she's described according to Mark 7. A little girl who is being oppressed by a demon. And this is her little girl. Some of you guys have little girls. This is her little girl, and she's being hurt by a thing that her mother can do nothing to stop. Nothing. And so she pleads with Jesus. She's not a Jew. She's not an Israelite, which means that she should not be, under Messianic protocol, coming to Jesus. Because at this time, Jesus belongs to the Jews, and she's a Gentile. Yet she knows who Jesus is. He is the Lord. That's what she calls him, the Lord, the son of David, the great king of Israel. He is the Christ of God. She knows this. 
She knows that he's more than simply a man, more than simply a rabbi. He is the one. That's what the son of David is. He's the one that came. And so she doesn't stop. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus doesn't listen to her initially. He says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But that statement does not stop her. She comes and she kneels before him and she says, Lord, help me. And Jesus explains at this time the Messianic protocol. It's not right to take the children's bread, the house of Israel's bread, and throw it to the Gentiles, the dogs. In other words, I came to feed my people. And while I'm alive, that's what I'm here to do. I'm not here to heal and redeem the Gentiles yet. It's going to happen. Therefore, I can't give you the bread that belongs to the children. To which the woman responds, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, even the Gentiles will eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table, which is an astonishing statement of faith after everything Jesus has done to see. Do you really believe? It is astonishing. She's saying here, one crumb. Just give me one crumb for my daughter. One crumb and help her. Free her from this demon. And Jesus is very moved, very moved by this pursuit of help. And he says, oh woman, great is your faith. Your faith is tremendous. And instantly, he heals this little girl. This little girl's healed She believed that he could heal her daughter. She believed it. And just like that, the demon is gone, and she has her little girl back, no longer oppressed. And this is Jesus healing in response to her faith, her trust in God and in his ability to provide what she needs. And so here is yet another thing that this Gentile Canaanite woman has in common with The Gentile Canaanite woman we've been studying, Ruth, 3,000 years earlier, Ruth has the same kind of faith because she, like we talked about last week, commits to sacrifice extraordinarily to stay with Naomi. She doesn't go back to her home. She leaves all that is behind, all of her past, all of her home, her family, her relatives behind. And that sacrifice we talked about last week is rooted in her faith in God. Both Ruth and Naomi have lost their husbands, like we said earlier. The family that they had in Moab is gone, and they are returning to Bethlehem empty-handed. And that's where we begin the second chapter. As we start the second chapter, that's right where we're starting it, right as they're about to come into this place and pick up where they left off, where Naomi left off years ago when she left. It's very likely that Ruth and Naomi have no money, They have no food, they have no provisions, yet they have one thing. Ruth has faith. She's trusting in God. The famine in Israel, we already saw that if you were with us two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we saw that that is over. God has visited his his children and he's provided them a harvest. And so that's the last verse of chapter one. We're going to pick up in the first verse of chapter two. This is what it says. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
So in this first verse, the author in this book is giving us a peek at something that the characters in the story actually don't know. Naomi hasn't remembered this or realized this. Maybe in the, the, the trauma of losing her, summer, her, her husband and the trauma of the last 10 years of being outside of, of the people of Israel, her, her friends and her family, she's forgotten and she doesn't realize right now and the characters don't realize right now that there's this man named Boaz who is related to Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And he is described as a worthy man. He is a relative through her husband, which will prove to be a critical factor in this story. But right now, this is a a little taste of dramatic irony because the author is telling us something. He's tipping his hand a little bit that we need to know before we continue the story. There is a man, and his name is Boaz, and he is related to Naomi. And so, like I said, Boaz or uh, Ruth and Naomi are probably low on food. So we get verse two here, which says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi says to her, Go, my daughter. So it's, it's very interesting to note when you read through the book of Ruth, you'll see it uh, prominently the frequency with which the author desires to remind his reader that Ruth isn't Jewish. She is not an Israelite. She is from Moab. He calls her Ruth the Moabite here. He does that frequently throughout this story. And the point is this, she's a Gentile, just like the Canaanite woman we saw earlier from Matthew 15. She has no right to expect to be blessed by God, by Yahweh, the the God of the Hebrews, apart from one thing, She trusts in this God. She knows that he is good and he is faithful. And therefore, she can boldly say, let me go, Naomi, to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. There's someone out there who will show favor to me because God's grace is with us. I trust our God to provide someone to give us food, to get us food. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner, yet she knows the God of Israel. She knows that he's good. And for the last 10 years or so of her life, she must have, in her relationship with Naomi and her relationship with that family, heard of this God. And if not heard of him, she must have experienced at least a taste of the grace that comes from his hand. So we see quickly here now that her faith is unwarranted. If you look at verse 3 through 7, Look how this plays out. So she, that is Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who the author reminds us was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came up from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. 
So, so Re- Ruth is, is, is gleaning in the field after the reapers, which means she's picking up the leftover grain that the landowner's reapers had not gotten on the first pass. This was a requirement of the Hebrew law for, for landowners or people who owned crops, produce, and grain to leave some of the grain behind. And God made this law explicitly to protect the poor, to protect the impoverished, and to protect the foreigner who was sojourning in the land of his people and provide really for people who could not provide for themselves. And it says here that Ruth happened to come to part of the field that belonged to Boaz. So the man that that the author mentioned earlier, this Boaz gentleman, he's about to collide with Ruth's story. He's not just a random person. He's part of this story. And it says, she happened to come to this field. So this isn't a strategic play on her part. She doesn't even know who Boaz is. As far as the text is concerned, she's just trying to provide for Naomi and going out in the fields, and she happens to come to Boaz's field. And Boaz happens to come from Bethlehem out into the fields of Judah. Unbeknownst to Ruth, he is a relative of Naomi. Now, it's going to make a lot of sense in future weeks, not as much this week, but he's connected to Elimelech, Naomi's uh, perished husband. And as Boaz approaches, he speaks to the reapers. And this is really critical that we see this here. It feels like a random event. Why mention this? Has nothing to do with the story. He says, the Lord, or Yahweh in Hebrew, be with you. And they respond to him and say, the Lord bless you. And this exchange actually does two things for the reader. The first thing it does is it immediately shows the earlier assessment the author made of Boaz is not disconnected to the story. He is a worthy man. This isn't, there wasn't simply a statement about him generally. He is genuinely a God-honoring, God-fearing man who, de- who desires for his reapers to be blessed by God, to have God with them. And um, the second thing is this. This exchange is important because it reminds us of something we saw in the first week in this book, which is this, that God, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is sovereign. He is governing all things, including Boaz and his reapers, whether or not they'll be blessed. Boaz isn't just extending a greeting. He's not just saying some sort of kind salutation. He desires for God to actually be with his reapers, that they would do this work with the strength that he provides, with the the wisdom that he provides. And the reapers are saying, the Lord bless you because they genuinely want their employer to experience the grace and mercy of God. And they don't appeal to other gods. They, they They don't trust in their own strength alone here. They appeal to the one that governs all things. And therefore, we're reminded then, in this exchange even, that when it says Ruth happened to be in this field and Boaz happened to come from Bethlehem, there's nothing in in those two statements that doesn't align with the fact that God is completely governing it. In other words, he is designing it. Ruth and Boaz our characters, God is the author of this story. He is sovereign. He governs over these things completely. And so Boaz sees this woman working hard in his field, and he asks about her. And they tell him, she's the Moabite. 
If you are with us two weeks ago, there's an exchange as Naomi gets into the city and, and they say, is that Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And the city knows. They've been talking about this. Naomi is back. She doesn't have her husband. She doesn't have her two sons. She is back. And she's got this young Moabite woman with her. And she's asked Boaz's reapers if she can glean in the field. And they say she did. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest, which means she has been working hard. He is surprised at how much she's been working. And Boaz hears this and immediately approaches her. And then we get to verse 8, which says this. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And it says, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? This is really an incredible scene. So Boaz approaches Ruth and tells her, this is what I want you to do. I don't want you to glean in any other fields. Don't go anywhere. You can stay in my fields. Do not leave this one. Glean here. Stay with my servants and only glean from the fields that you see them go to. And not only does she have effectively unbridled access to these fields here, but he's saying, I'm going to provide you with protection. I've told the young men not to touch you, which means you're safe in my fields. You're completely safe, which is a serious issue for people who are gleaning because they could be risk exploitation, risk being harmed, a young Moabite woman who knows what could happen to her in the stocks of grain. So he's providing her with protection, but then he goes even further than that and says, when you're thirsting, you can drink from the vessels of water that the men draw. They're yours. You can drink them just like you are one of my own servants. And we see by her response that she is shocked at what he is doing here. This is, this is really unparalleled. This is, this is not something that would normally happen. It is one thing to have permission to glean in a field. It is another thing entirely to have the kind of protection and provision that he's promising for her. And this blessing is really beyond words for, for, for Ruth. And so she falls on her face. She bows low to the ground to honor Boaz. And she says, why is it that I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I'm not even, I'm not even part of your people. I'm a Moabite. I'm a, I'm a Gentile Canaanite. And she's not at all Boaz's responsibility, yet somehow he's found favor in her eyes, or he's, she's found favor in his eyes, and he tells her exactly why, starting in verse 11. Listen to what he says here. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you, Ruth, for what you have done, and full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, 
I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So Boaz's response is very straightforward, very plain. He tells her, listen, I've heard of everything you've done for your mother-in-law. I've heard of your sacrifice. I've heard that you left your people in the land of Moab, your entire family, your entire way of life, and you came to Judah, a place that you didn't know these people. You didn't have a home here. You didn't know what was going to await you, but you came because you wanted to love and care for Naomi. You left your father and your mother and everything you'd known for this woman. And she went to a people she had not known before, potentially exposing herself to harm, to abuse, to exploitation. And she's risked really everything for Naomi. And Boaz is stunned by the love that Ruth is showing Naomi, which is why he says to her, he blesses her and says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So even though he's already given her access to the fields, even though he's provided her with an abundance of provision and protection while she gleans, he blesses her. And he is, in talking to her, asking God to repay her for what she's done, to give her and bless her for what she's done. She's made this extraordinary sacrifice for Naomi, and he wants God to bless her. In his basis, the foundation under which he believes that she warrants to be blessed by God through this sacrificial love to Naomi is that he recognizes that Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of God, under the wings of Yahweh. She has come to trust and rely on the help that comes from the God of Israel. That's what it means to seek refuge under the wings of God. She believes that God will provide every single need and her hope is completely set on him. She has no hope in anything else. She's left all of her hope behind in Moab. And Boaz sees this clearly as the source, the seed, the foundation of her sacrificial love. And although Ruth is trusting in God, her response, you'll note, is it, it has zero presumption, zero expectation that is ungodly. Her response is she's shocked that he is showing this kind of mercy. She is stunned that she's found favor in Boaz's eyes. Boaz is treating her. Even the language he is using is like she belongs to Boaz, like he's part of her fa his family. Like she's one of his servants and he's speaking to her like he wants to take care of her. I want to provide for you, Ruth. I want to love you. I'm going to care for you. And he desires that both Ruth and Naomi are taken care of because he knows they're facing extraordinary difficulty and that they're relying on God in the middle of all of it. And I really want to focus on this aspect for the rest of our time together, this phrase um, uh, of, of seeking refuge or coming to take refuge under the wings of God, under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. What does that mean? What does it mean to take refuge under his wings? This is a kind of a picture of God as being this big, majestic, almost bird. And his people, those who trust in him, are like chicks underneath 
his wings. And this concept, this picture is a big part of the book of Ruth, but it's also a big part of Scripture holistically. Um, in fact, uh, we see this throughout the Bible, in particular in the book of Psalms. And in fact, David, who authored much of the book of Psalms and who is actually Ruth's great-grandson, often used this picture of God to describe God's relationship with his people, God's relationship with David. Listen to Psalm 57.1. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And then in Psalm 17.8, David asks God, he, he, he pleads with God for this same type of, of refuge. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And then my favorite out of all of them, there's several more that I could go through. My favorite is Psalm 63.7, which says, I remember you. This is David talking to God. I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. These are the prayers, these are the songs of David. This is what he said when he talked to God. This is how he communicated to God. And you wonder, maybe he got this from his great-grandmother. We don't know. But David constantly pled to God for protection and provision. This was his life. You read the Psalms, you cannot miss it. It was his life taking refuge in the wings of Yahweh. And he recognized that no matter where he was in the world, no matter what was going on in his life, no matter how difficult things were or challenging things were, or if people were coming to kill him, he recognized that there is no safer place in the world than being under the wings of God, than trusting in God. And so this idea of faith, of, of, of coming to seek refuge under the wings of God, is critical. It is central. It is not a secondary issue in the Bible. Seeking to take refuge from the wings of God is not a, a peripheral idea. It's not a, a sidebar to the main thing. It is central. It is what it means to know God and to trust Him and to love Him. Without faith, Hebrews 11.6 will tell us it is actually impossible to please God, which means, not to, not to make, put too fine a point on it, but this is, there, there is no single greater issue in the world when faced with Scripture than the issue of faith. And for Ruth, faith in God really means her leaving everything she knew behind and going with Naomi to the unknown land of Judah, the unknown people of Judah for her, who she has no ties to. And it meant that she was going to trust God for his provision, for his protection of her and Naomi. And even when poverty or exploitation or, or anything else, harm, threatened to, 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 to take hold of her, she would cling to Yahweh. She would hold fast to Yahweh. And earlier we saw the Canaanite woman who had a daughter who was oppressed with a demon. And this meant her, her, her taking, her believing, her trusting in God was visualized in her chasing down Jesus and not giving up. 
I'm not going to take no for an answer, Jesus. I know you can heal her. Please heal her. That's what faith looks like. It's clinging to God as though he is the only hope in the world. And the reason that Ruth and this Canaanite woman um, so visibly cling to God in these stories is because they're facing a storm of destruction. Just like David said in, in Psalm 57, they are walking through enormous suffering. Enormous suffering. Losing your husband is suffering. Having your daughter completely oppressed by a demonic spirit that you can do nothing over is suffering. And that's where faith can be seen. Without a storm in their lives, this line from Boaz wouldn't be here. We would never know if she has faith or not. Without a storm in her life, this story would be completely different, obviously. But these storms, these storms show us clearly and powerfully Ruth's faith. And they're important at two levels. The first level is this. We all experience suffering. We all will have to walk through. If you haven't experienced great suffering yet, you will walk through it at some point. We'll get a call that we do not want to hear. Someone will tell us something about a loved one that we do not want to hear or about ourselves. Suffering is a universal reality. Nobody escapes it in this world. And so like Ruth, we need to know, it is, it is critical that we know that we can take refuge under the wings of God. We need to cling to God in faith in the middle of the storm of destruction. We need to do that. But the second way, that's important, that's huge. But the second way is actually bigger and more significant. The second way is more fundamental. We need to understand that this line from Boaz to Ruth about faith is, is more important than just suffering and calamity causing us to turn to God, though it may be critical, because there is a more ultimate storm that every human being faces that we need shelter from. So underneath the, the death of Ruth's husband and of Naomi's husband and of her son, and underneath the, the woman's um, suffering when her daughter is being plagued by a demon, a demonic spirit, is something even more catastrophic than the suffering itself. It is sin. And I'm not talking about Ruth's individual sin bringing the suffering on. I'm not talking about the Canaanite woman's individual sin bringing the suffering on. I'm talking about the entirety of sinful mankind. The reason we have suffering in this world is because we have sin in this world. That's the reason there's suffering in this world. And the reason why Elimelech and Malon died and that there is death in this world to begin with and suffering is sin. And so let's be clear, what is sin? What is, what is sin fundamentally? I think we all know sin is disobeying commandments, we all know that, but that is unhelpful if we're trying to get to the bottom. What is sin fundamentally? Sin is a refusal to do what we were made to do. We were made to glorify and enjoy God as our treasure 
forever. That's what we were made to do. And, and what sin is, is a refusal to enjoy God for being God. So sin isn't a bad thing we do. It isn't just a bad thing we do. Sin is the posture of the heart that leads to every kind of bad thing. Rather than enjoy God who gives us life, who sustains us, who blesses us, sin is pursuing joy in anything else we can get our hands on more than God. And the tragedy of sin is that according to Romans 3, everyone is infected with this. Everyone has the same inclination to disabuse themselves of the worth and glory of God and pursue other things in his place. So whether you're Ruth or the Canaanite woman or me or you, the natural inclination, the natural disposition of every human being is to seek anything else but God for that throne that he alone has. And this is a big problem because refusal to enjoy the worth of God isn't just a tragedy. That is a tragedy. That image bearers have a desire to not bear the image of God, but rather be God. They have a desire to not show God and know him, but to live as though they are God. That's a tragedy, but it's also a crime. It is a crime. In other words, it is objectively offensive to not regard a holy, wonderful, glorious, beautiful God as God. To treat the reality of God as an unreality is to trample his beauty and his glory. And it is the exact opposite of what we were designed as image bearers to do. So that the greatest storm we will ever face in our lives, the greatest storm is not physical sickness. It is not losing your job. It is not being harmed or exploited or hurt or even losing a loved one. The greatest storm, though they are all massive storms, the greatest storm we will ever face is the justice of God. It is His holiness being offended by our lack of desire to enjoy him for being God. But the good news, and it is good news, is that God has made a refuge. God has made a refuge. God has spread his wings and he offers freely for us to fly to him for protection. And this refuge I'm talking about, the refuge that that passage in Ruth echoes, even faintly, is the entire point of the Bible. It's the reason we have a Bible. Listen to Romans 3, 23 through 25. It says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Paul is saying here that everyone in the world, every human being in the world has sinned. 
and they have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, they have, it doesn't mean to, to not make the mark. It means, what it means is to lack the glory of God. They were given the glory to reflect and they lack it. They've turned away from the glory of God and they've turned to embrace all other glories in this world. And this includes Ruth. This includes me and you. This includes every single human being. And though we ought to be forsaken by God, though we ought to, God ought to do to us what we have naturally had the inclination to do with him, which is forget about him. Yet, God does not leave us to wrath. He instead, amazingly, in this passage, gives us a gift. And it says here, we are justified by his grace as a gift. God makes us right with him, and it is a gift. We did not earn it. We did not make it happen. He gives it to us. The refuge is a gift. And this gift is called here the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, or as Boaz would say, our refuge, the refuge under the wings of Yahweh. That's this redemption, ultimately. It is coming under the wings of God. Our refuge is the cross of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to finding a refuge, there is one, there's no one that's more ultimate, more fundamental, more critical than the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the shadow underneath the wings of God. And it says here that God puts his son forward, his only son, as a propitiation, which means that Jesus is punished in our place. So think about this for a second here. Every beating, every lash, every nail in the hand or feet, that was the cost of our refuge. That was the ransom for us to have a refuge. Every millisecond of him being forsaken by his father and the wrath of God being poured out on him was the payment, the cost for our refuge. It wasn't free. It was extraordinarily expensive which is why they have these words, this words, the words here, by his blood, by his blood. He paid it with his own life. He bought it with his own life. The infinitely worthy, infinitely precious blood of Jesus. You see, Boaz could have offered, at very little cost to himself, his field to Naomi and Ruth. He offered his field, his protection, his provision. That was nothing, nothing compared to what was offered on the cross. Nothing. It was an enormous, unfathomable love, cost rather, for the Father. And that shows us, the cross shows us, this payment, something that would be impossible to see without it. It shows us the love of God. You see, Boaz falls in love with Ruth. This is a spoiler. Boaz falls in love with Ruth. He loves her. She loves him. But his Ruth is nothing compared to the love of God. Nothing compared to the love of God and what God did for us. It is really the difference between a breath and a hurricane. Boaz's love for Naomi 
though it is extraordinary, though it is a glorious thing in the scriptures, is it pales utterly in comparison to the love of God. Listen to John describe the love of God in 1 John 4. Listen to what he says. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. There's that word again, for our sins. He says, in this is love. In other words, do you want to know what love is? Would you like to know what love is? Would you like to know what it means to love someone? Here it is. It is not that we have loved God. We have not loved God. But rather that he loved us. He loved you individually. I think we think a lot of times about him collectively loving the church. That is a glorious thing. He looks at you, your face, your name, and he loves you. And John is saying the reason why Jesus was put forward as a propitiation is because of that love, his love for you individually. He put his son forward as a wrath bearer and he made, he created in the cross a refuge for us, an eternal refuge. And that's what the cross represents. Think about this. God spoke the universe into existence with his words. Hebrews tells us that Jesus holds the universe together by the power of his words. Yet it took more than words for him to create this refuge for fallen humanity. To build a refuge for fallen humanity was exceedingly more than that. He would need to send his only son, his infinitely precious son, to be the propitiation for our sins to pay for our sins so that we would have a refuge in the storm of God's wrath. The cross is a shelter under the wings of Yahweh. The cross is what it means to be underneath the wings of Yahweh. And the joy of salvation that the cross purchased for us will be our song for all eternity. See, we see the value of the cross right now. Like in this room, we recognize that Jesus dying for us is a big deal. It's a big deal. We see it so dimly compared to what we will see on that day. When we see it with complete clarity, everything it costs God and how much we didn't deserve it and how great his love must be, we will sing forever. We will experience joy forever. The suffering of the world will be long over and we will be able to enjoy this God the way we were always meant to be, the way we were always meant to enjoy him and treasure him. That will be real for us. No limitations, no dimness to see the cross. We will glory in him as we were meant to, to do since the very beginning. In the next few minutes, we'll be worshiping and partaking in communion, the Lord's Supper. And um, this sacrament is designed explicitly to get our eyes on the cross to look at the cost of what God paid in order to redeem us. That's why we have communion. And if your faith is in, this is in this God for this refuge, the cross, then I would ask that you partake and, and consider the cost of the cross, that when he purchased this, cross, this cost for you, when he purchased this refuge for you, 
um, that what that means is that he bought for you an eternity in his presence. Psalm 1611 says, at his right hand, there is fullness of joy and in his presence, pleasures forevermore. That's what he bought for you. That's yours. And these elements represent that. Payment for that. Before I close in prayer, I wanted to encourage you by reading to you a passage from the Psalms about this refuge. If your faith is in God, if you've taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh, this passage in Psalm 91 is yours. I want you to own it. Every verse, every word, own it. Feel this from God to you. I'm just going to read the first nine or ten verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. It won't. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling, the Most High, who is my refuge. Let me pray. It is hard for us, Father God, to believe that there will be a refuge where the enemy's arrows cannot get us. There's a place that exists in reality where he can't touch us anymore. Where the suffering that we experience in this life is erased. And all the sad things that we've had to walk through suddenly become untrue and are reversed, healed, forgiven. But there is a place like that in reality, and it's called the wings of Yahweh. And we take refuge in those wings, underneath those wings, in the shadow of those wings, when we receive you and trust you and love you. And so I pray right now just for the people who are or who will be in the coming days or weeks walking through tremendous pain and suffering, that you would be a refuge for them, Father. That they would cling to you and hold fast to you and never, ever let go. And I also pray, Father, that we would get a sense of, by looking at passages like these, your worth and the, the violence that we have done to your name and your holiness and your glory by not loving you the way that you should be loved, by not enjoying you for the treasure that you are, Father. And that in our recognition of the objective justice in a penalty of us being separated from you forever, 
that we would take refuge in the cross of Jesus Christ, that we would cling to the cross and say, I'm not letting go. You bought me by the blood of Jesus Christ. You paid for me, and I will put my faith in this God. I will put my faith in this gospel that it can save me. Father, we ask this, pleading with you for mercy, helping us feel the, the eternal weight of, this, of these texts and these passages and these truths. Don't let us leave here with a feeling of glibness, but give us a sense of your glory and your worth, Father God. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.